Let's read together, please, in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And verse 25. Judges 6 and 25. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, unto Gideon, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place. And take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. And Gideon took ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down. And the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon the son of Joash hath done this thing. And the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called him Zerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites... And the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher, and unto Zebulun, and unto Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. And we look to the Lord to give help speaking on this passage. We trust it won't take away from what we have heard about our great high priest. When you hear the name Gideon, you probably think about fleece setting, uh, trumpets, torches, and clay pots, and the mighty victory over the Midianites with a band of 300 men. That's a good thing to think about. It was a mighty victory over that group of people. We remember it well. But there was a victory that preceded it that few remember. If he had failed here, he would have succeeded nowhere else. Every victory that Gideon achieved followed the victory that we just read about. So I want to speak about Gideon's lesser known victory. 
The background of our story is this, and you're probably very familiar with this, is that Gideon has been called, he has been commissioned, he was told exactly but he was told by the Lord exactly what the Lord would use him to do. You remember, he's, he's actually hiding behind the wine, maybe in the wine press, because he would be completely surrounded then. And he's threshing wheat, and he's wondering if the Midianites are going to rob this little bit that he has threshed for his family. And there he is, and suddenly, by an oak tree, an angel of the Lord comes and says, Gideon, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And the Lord tells him what he's going to use him to do. But before he could do that, there was one piece of unfinished business that Gideon would have to address. Do you remember the question that Gideon did ask the Lord earlier? You remember what it was? When God said to to Gideon, the Lord is with thee, you mighty man of valor. Remember what the question was? Gideon says, why then has all this befallen us? Verse 13. Why has all of this happened to us? In other words, why have the Midianites been allowed to overrun our land for these past seven years if the Lord is indeed with us, if he's with me? Well, the Lord doesn't answer that that question right away. In fact, it's not really until verse 25 that we read together that we get the real answer. What does God say? Throw down the altar of Baal. The worship of Baal is the why all this has befallen us. Baal and Ashtaroth were the false gods of his own family. They were right there. Throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath. Right there in his backyard. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that this was some little tiny altar that was tucked away in the backyard and that they had to look really hard to find. No, it was prominent. There was a Baal altar discovered at Megiddo, not too far from Ophrah, not too far from here, that was 26 feet square, four and a half feet high. And the likelihood is, is that Joash's altar was probably very similar. It was, it was large enough, wasn't it, that the village pagans came there in the morning? As it seemed their custom was, they were coming to the, to the big altar, to their big and powerful God. And this was a problem. This was a big problem. A big obstacle that must be removed. Gideon, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you for big and mighty things. But before I do, there's something else that you must do. The situation is very similar to that of Moses. Both Gideon and Moses were God's representatives called upon for a very dangerous mission against a powerful enemy. But both of them had to bring themselves and their homes into compliance with God's law before they could be used to accomplish that great task. So you remember remember Moses had a similar experience. Now not meeting the Lord at an oak tree, but meeting the Lord at the burning bush. And God tells Moses exactly what he's going to use him to do. And it seems that just after the very next chapter, As you're reading and you can't wait to see what Moses is going to do. Moses is on his deathbed. He's been struck by illness. And he's about to die. And you're scratching your head and you're trying to figure out, why is this happening? If he's going to be so used, then what's the problem here? Why is Moses lying and, and about to die? And we remember, it's a bit of a strange text, isn't it? You're reading it and his wife says to him, you're a bridegroom of blood. 
What does that mean? You know what happened? Here was the problem. Moses, who would really in many ways represent the covenant that God made with his people. Moses' son didn't have the mark of the covenant on him. Moses' son was not circumcised. Imagine what would have happened years later if all of the people that he was leading in the wilderness, who they they had been circumcised, those Jewish males had been circumcised. You imagine if they found out Moses never had this. Moses never had his son do this. Imagine what kind of a uprising there would be then. I mean, there was enough uprising as it was, but imagine what it would have been in that case. God says, "No, Moses, before before I'm going to use you to lead my people that are covenant people, you're going to have to make sure that your family is brought in alignment." with the same principles that are in that covenant. And so he struck with this illness. And that's why, now it seems like he could have blamed some of it on his wife, right? She she looks at the whole business and says, this, this is a horrible thing to have to do to our son. You're just a, you're a bridegroom of blood. Whether she said that or, or whatever she meant by that didn't make any difference. Moses, you've got to take care of this. You have got to take, and actually Moses could not physically move forward with God's plan for his life until it was dealt with. And the same goes for Gideon here. He's been called. He's willing to go. But wait. And not now a private area of neglect, but a very public area of neglect has to be dealt with. You cannot serve God and worship Baal. And listen, before Midian could go, before Midian could go, Baal must go. And it might be here today that you've been, you've been hearing, uh, I have, you, have you heard challenging ministry? And maybe you've even been given di- ministry that will direct you to what God wants you to do for the next year, for, for, the, for the rest of your life. I don't know. That's the great thing about conferences, is that as God's Word is being ministered, it speaks to our hearts and directs our paths. And maybe that's you today, and you're going home, and you've got, you've got something to do. God has directed you. But listen, very often God puts His finger on an area of neglect in our life when that's the case. And we won't make any progress until that's dealt with. You must deal with your Baals before God will deal with your Midian. You must deal with your Baal before God will deal with your Midian. Now, Gideon has received his instructions. He knows what the Lord wants him to do. Now, what is he going to do? What's he going to do? I want to emphasize four things to summarize this little story of Gideon's lesser-known victory. I want you to think first of Gideon weighing it up. He's weighing it all up. And then for a few moments, we'll think about Gideon moving out. He's moving out. And then, time permitting, we'll think about Gideon pulling down what needed to be pulled down. Tore down the altar. Tore down the grove. And then we'll think about Gideon building up what needed to be built up. So first, think about Gideon weighing up. Weighing, he's weighing everything up. Now, I'm not sure how much time Gideon had to weigh it all up. But as the Lord was speaking, you can be sure, as he was listening to what God was saying, he began to calculate the cost. He's starting to count the cost. What will the cost be if I'm obe- Imagine that. Go to your father's house. Go to your father's house and tear down the altar 
that's in his backyard. It's going to cost him. It could cost him tremendously. It could cost him a place in the family. That's what it says about him in verse 27. He feared his father's household. And who wouldn't fear their father's household? Go home to your father's house and tear down this grove and tear down this altar. I don't know what that's like. But I'm sure some of you here do know what it's like to follow a path of obedience to the Lord and to His Word. And it has cost you a place in the family, hasn't it? God sees it. It must bring a tremendous smile to His face and warmth to His heart as He sees one so willing to pay such a price because you love the Lord and you love His Word. It could cost him a place in the community. He feared his father's household But verse 27 says he feared the men of the city. Doesn't seem like he had too much trouble with the the people in the city. Till now. And maybe you kind of like the reputation that you have in the city and nobody really disturbs you too much and you're not really the object of scorn and you just want to blend in. But if you do what God is calling you to do, it may very well be that it will cost you. It will cost you a place in the family. It might cost you a place in the community. It might, listen, for Gideon, it may have even, as far as he was reckoning, this could cost him his life. This could cost him his life. In fact, verse 30, it's what the men sought when his actions were uncovered. And they break, I imagine them busting through the door of Joash and saying, bring out your son, Gideon, that he may die. Could cost him his life. And he's weighing it all up. He's counting the cost. And the calculations that were made led him to decide it's better to obey God no matter what. It's better to obey God no matter what. Maybe you've been weighing it all up today and maybe yesterday as you heard convicting preaching from the Word of God. You too, like Gideon, have heard from God. God has given you His Word. It seemed like... Maybe it it certainly was for me. It seemed like that was just for me. Could cost you. And it will cost you. And it's been said many, many times before. And in many different ways. But let me just say this. Whatever it costs you to obey God, it will cost you more to disobey God. So Gideon weighs it up. And the choice is made. His mind was made up. I want you to think about Gideon now moving out. I'm going to do this. I like verse 27. Just two simple words. Then Gideon. Then Gideon. Immediate action. In fact, there's no no turning back now. He's got his plan. He's got his people. His servants are with him. He's got his orders. And he is going to carry them out. I sure hope this weekend serves as a no turning back moment for some of us here. You know, we could, it's very easy to actually forget resolves we made yesterday. Our hearts are just that wicked. But will we today just resolve from this moment forward, things are going to be different. Things are going to be good. God spoke to me at that conference. He put his finger on an altar that I know should not be there. Listen, if that comes to your mind in a meeting without any specifics being given, 
Who is it that puts that on your mind? You think the devil puts that on your mind? God's spirit puts things on our mind. This is an altar. It should not be there. And I am resolved to deal with it right away. So then Gideon, he's moving out. He moves out in faith. He moves out in faith. And faith is not just blind, like, I I hope this is going to work. But he moves out, he's got something to go on, right? He's got the Word of God to go. It was God that met him and spoke to him and gave him his Word. He's got the Word of God to go on. He's got something else. He's got the presence of God to go with, go with him. In fact, that was the very first thing that God said to Gideon. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. I like to think about that because as Gideon is making his way to his father's house in the middle of the night, I'm sure he would love to remember, oh, the Lord said he would be with me. I, sh- <laughs> I think he is. I sure hope he is. Because if he's not, I don't know how this is going to work. But listen, you have the word of God. When we decide to do what Gideon did, please remember, we have the word of God for it, and we have the presence of God with us. We have no less. <coughs> and then it says, Gideon took ten men and did as the Lord had said unto him. So he's got his men with him. I, th- I find it interesting. He found ten men that were not afraid to side with him. I don't know what all he told the men. Oh, by the way, we're going to go tear down the altar in my father's backyard. I don't know how if they would have gone along with it or not. He probably told them and they weren't afraid. If Gideon is, is courageous, see, sometimes courage can rub off on your peers. I, I want young people to think about that today. Young men that are here. When you decide to do what's right. You don't know the effect that's going to have on somebody next to you. And maybe a brother that's just a, a year younger than you, he's going to watch it and say, if he can do that, then maybe I can do that too. And it rubs off. And he's got ten men with him. He's got ten men with him that are not afraid in this chapter. You know how many men he's got in the next chapter that aren't afraid? <laughs> 10,000. So there were 32,000. That's right. And then he said, anybody that's afraid can go home. And that left him 10,000. Ten in this chapter. 10,000 in the next. And verse 27 also says that he did it by night. He did it at nighttime. And that's okay, I think. Didn't want to draw too much attention or maybe somebody would try to put a stop to it. But the practical point I want to leave with us here is this. Whenever they did this, nobody, nobody saw. Nobody could see what was happening. And very often, the greatest accomplishments for God are carried out when nobody else sees it. They're just taking place in the quietness of our own inner lives. And listen, if nobody else sees it happening, that's just fine. The fact that it was done at night also points out that Gideon not only moved out in faith, but he did, he did move out in fear. He feared his father's household. And that's okay. It's okay to be afraid. Uh, in many ways, I think God was asking Gideon to fight the most difficult battle first. You ever thought about that? Midian was a lot less intimidating than father, than Joash, and Ophrah, and those in his family. After all, Gideon had to live with Joash every day. But I don't, I don't think this is a problem that he's moving out in fear. Listen, faith is not demonstrated by fearlessness. Faith is demonstrated by obedience. And sometimes men can move out in faith and have no fear. 
And I look sometimes at some of the examples of men. I say, wow, I wish I could be like those men. They're just totally fearless. And they can do this and that. And, and sometimes you talk to them and they say, oh, it might look like that, but I am afraid. <laughs> in fact, there's a man in the New Testament. What's his name? Yeah, Paul. That's right. First Corinthians. He's writing to the people and he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul. Paul was that way. I find that we're in very good company then. If we can be in company with men like Paul and with men like Gideon, that's not such a bad thing. Paul was being obedient. God wanted him there. He wanted him in Corinth for that. There he is for the 18 months. And he's being used. But when he got there, he was afraid. And Gideon is moving toward his father's altar in the cover of night. And he's afraid. And it's okay to be afraid. You know, sometimes, maybe you've had this happen. I'm sure you've had it happen. And the Lord says, I want you to go and do this. And he's guiding it. Circumstances are leading you to go here or to say this to that person or to meet with this person. And you get there or on the way, you're just kind of, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm afraid. All the more commendable that you're willing to obey God, even when you do fear. And so they they move out. I see Gideon and his 10 men, and maybe they're all shaking a bit and they have the bullocks. They got both of the beasts with them. They're under the cover of darkness. They're trembling with each step. And they arrive at that massive structure, the altar of Baal. And right next to it, they can see raised in the sky the pole that's there to Ashtoreth. And there's the, here, here's the altar. Big pile of stones all cemented together. Not something that you can just walk over and start pushing, pushing apart. And so they would tie the ropes to the bulls and get everything in place. And Gideon would give the word. Let's do it as quietly as we can. Gideon weighing up. Gideon Gideon moving out. And now I want you to think about Gideon pulling everything down. And he gives the word. And he prod the, the bullocks. And they begin to stretch those ropes. And you can hear them. And they're grunting. And they're straining. And the men maybe are grabbing a hold of the ropes too. And they're pulling and they're sweating. And suddenly the, the structure begins to shake a bit. And a stone flies off here and falls over there. Until at last that great altar to Baal is a scattered pile of rocks on the ground. And I'm sure they thought, good. Good to have it done with. We're not finished. And the axe comes out. You see it? It's got to come down. And they begin the chopping. Until that big pole crashes to the earth with a thunderous thud. You know what's strange to me? All that noise. The crumbling of the rocks. The chopping of that. I mean, people didn't have like acres and acres of land and were far away from each other. I mean, it was all right, all right near. The whole community wasn't very large. All that chopping and all that crumbling. And at first, no one in the town even seems to notice what's going on. And eventually, the aroma of the sacrifice on the altar would be wafting into the... You know what it's like. You can tell when your neighbors are grilling something. You walk out and you say, Hey, they're they're cooking something next door. All this going on. Chopping and cutting and and stones are rolling and and, and a sacrifice is being offered and there's a fire that you can see in the middle of the night and there's the smell of the bull and at first it doesn't seem that anybody's noticing. Wait, 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 wait. Somebody noticed it. Somebody noticed it. God noticed it. How it must have thrilled his heart to see it. And so too will God notice your acts of obedience and your surrender and your sacrifice that you make for him. Even if you're afraid 
the whole time you do it. There's a few good lessons for us here. There are likely some things in our lives that need to be pulled down. Maybe even chopped up. (laughs) Are we honest enough to admit that we may have a bit of an idolatry problem? And I don't want to give too many examples because really anything. Mr. Colson was telling us yesterday, we all have our struggles with the flesh. And we can all tend to bring things in that will become idol-like, if not idols. Music. I, listen, I love music. I love it a lot. And I have to be careful. As long as it's the right kind of music, I tell myself that. As long as it's the right kind of music, right? I'll give you an extreme example of musical idolatry. We like extreme examples. They make us feel more comfortable about our but I'll tell, you, I'll tell you anyway, this happened back in the 90s. I don't know if it's still going on now, but there were these, these fans of Elvis, Elvis Presley. And they, they, they were revering him as, as a god. He was, the king, he was surely the king of rock and roll. And pockets of semi-organized Elvis worship took hold here in New York. You might, be around to, you might have been around to remember it. And it took place in Colorado, and it took place in Indiana. And the, and the worshipers would come together, and they would, they would get together. They would raise their hands. They would spell his name. They would chant his name. They would work themselves into a fervor. And uh, they, they would even pray to Elvis, the deceased star. Followers believed that he watched over them, that he would guide them, that he would help them, that... And someone, if someone reported uh, an Elvis sighting, it was hard to keep up with them all. Uh, the high priests at the Church of the Risen Elvis in Denver, Colorado, would hold worship, Elvis worship services. They enshrined a look-alike doll of Elvis in an altar surrounded by candles and flowers. And this really happened. Listen, idolatry is alive and well in America. It still is. Pretty extreme. I'm glad I don't have that problem. Yet, or maybe you do, and I, I, I don't like giving personal examples. I just remember, listen, the wrong kind of music is, is, is not good to listen to, okay? Just listen to the lyric. You know, I hear a song now on the radio, and, and, I'll, and I'll stop sometimes. I used to really like to listen to that song. And then I listen to it, and I go, why did I like listening to that? Listen to what they were saying. I remember with my, my brother-in-law wouldn't mind me saying this. I remember having a bit of a ceremony. It was a second year university. And out came the tapes. Not the eight tracks, okay? We weren't, it wasn't that long ago. We got out the, the cassettes and we said, this is it. Pile of shells on the floor. And it was fun pulling them all out, you know. The big pile on the floor. You know what? We're done. I'm done. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm proud of it. I'm the one who put the idol there in the first place. It was time to move on. And then we started listening to the Scottish choirs <laughs> and the dorm room and, met, and the, the visitors down the road. What, what are these men doing? And we, we settled out on something at least a little more balanced. But uh, you know what that feels like when you say, I'm done. That's great. Maybe it's not music. Maybe it's sports. I love sports, too, and i got to be careful. God, I know a lot about sports. I admit it. When does sports as entertainment become sports as idolatry? 
Consider this banner that was seen at Lambeau Field in 1996 when the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl. It was in New Orleans. Their quarterback was Brett Favre. He was named the MVP. And I almost hesitate to read you what the banner said, but here's what the banner said. Our Favre, who art in Lambeau, hallowed be thy arm. The bowl will come. It will be won in New Orleans as it is in Lambeau. Give us this day, give us this Sunday our weekly win and give us many touchdown passes. But do not let others pass against us. Lead us not into frustration, but deliver us to Bourbon Street. For thine is the MVP, the best of the NFL, and the glory of the cheeseheads now and forever. Go get them. Now, apparently, some fans recognize their team's support for what it really is. It's worship. And listen, I'm just asking us all here today to think about what things, and there are many others, are altars that need to be pulled down. It might be that you couldn't think of life without video games. I liked video games too. You know what? They're young men destroying their lives, and they don't even realize it. And you might be. I've heard of marriages that are breaking up because he just can't stop playing. We didn't have to think about this before. The interactive nature of it wasn't around. And now it's an all-out obsession. And it can be a number of things. It can be the nest egg in the bank. Anything can be an idol. You have your tendencies, and I have mine. These are obstacles for living for God, and they must must be removed. Listen, don't go home. Don't go home and worship your idol less. Go home and get rid of it. And if it is an idol, you know what it is between you and the Lord. You want to do things for God? Well, let's just all resolve to do some house cleaning when we get home. I, I, I know I've got something. Do you? Speaking of home, here's another lesson from the story. We have to make things right at home before we can be used anywhere else. Gideon? Go home. Fix what's there. Then I'll use you in a wider sphere. Gideon, go home. Tear down the altar. Tear down the grove. And when you defeat Baal, then you can defeat Midian. One more lesson here. I like to think about the fact that Gideon was very true to his name when he was doing what he was doing. Because you know what Gideon's name means? Gideon means the cutter down. The cutter down. Took him a while to be true to his name, but he was. It's what he did. Cut down that grove. Cut down that altar. Can I ask us all, are we true to our name? We bear the highest name. We take the name of Christ. Let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Gideon. Pulling down. I want you to think lastly about Gideon building up. You can't just leave with just, oh, we've got to tear all this down. And, and then what? <clears throat> Gideon builds up what needs to be built. It's one thing to tear down what needs to be to- torn down, what's wrong. But then we need to build up what's right. So he, what did he, he built an altar, verse 26. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place. Or some renderings in an orderly fashion, in an orderly manner. And it would have only taken moments to tear down what was wrong. 
just a few pulls and strains. It would take a long time, take a longer time to build up what was right. I don't want you to get discouraged by that. Start building up right now what will honor God in your life. Start building it up now as you leave this conference. But what is he, what's on the altar? That's what grabbed my attention. What does he put on the altar? Did he bring a sheep and the best? No. He says, I want you to put that bullock on the altar. Okay. Verse 26, take the second bullock and offer a sacrifice. What's the second bullock? Well, look at verse 25. The second bullock of seven years old. What's the significance of putting the bullock on the altar? You know what the significance is? First, the bull was associated with the Canaanites' fertility cults. It was the creature that was associated, the animal that was associated with all of the paganism of Baalism. It was what they knew about. And he says, now I want you to take what's a symbol of your idolatry and just put it there and it's going to go up in smoke. And, and not only that, but it was a bullock of seven years. And you remember how long the Midianites oppressed the people. Seven years. And so when Gideon offered up this bull of seven years on the altar, it was a reminder to him that the seven years of bondage were going up in smoke. Do you like that today to happen? Maybe something that it, it plagues you that you do it and that you have it. Would you like it to all go up in smoke today? Be gone. Wouldn't it be great? The bondage that has oppressed you for who knows how. Maybe it's seven years. Maybe it's seven weeks. But you must deal with your Baal before God will deal with your Midian. There's one. There's something else on the altar. Not just the bull, but there's the grove. Verse 26, he says, Offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. You have to burn the bull with something. You can't. Just, you don't just light flesh. It doesn't work too well. There's got to be something fueling it. And the fuel for the whole thing was the wood of the grove. And so they not only cut it down, but they chopped it up into the, into the sections, into the pieces. So when the bullock was offered up, Gideon would be graphically shown that the seven years of Midianite oppression were over. But as he looked on the wood beneath the bullock, That's what was fueling it. That's what fueled the whole thing. He would see that the reason for that Midianite oppression was the Israelite idolatry. That's what fueled the whole thing. Listen, bondage and idolatry go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. And if you've ever worked with people that have known what it's like to actually bow down to idols, they'll tell you what bondage is all about. Idolatry and bondage go hand in hand. Now, we're not done here yet. Gideon and his men, they slip away. They've done it. It feels good. We broke it. Nobody seemed to notice. The deed is done. And nobody saw Or did they see it? Secret known to ten men is no secret. Right? And so, look at verse 28. What happens? The men, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down. The grove was cut down that was by it. Alexander Witt has a tremendous book on Bible characters. And he said very memorably, he said, The worshipers of Baal never neglected their morning devotions. Early will I seek thee, they could say to their God with truth 
and a good conscience. And they show up. And what they see infuriates them. Listen to their response. They say in verses 29 and 30, Who has done this thing? Who has done this, this terrible thing in tearing down our altar and in tearing down our grove? And then they find out who did it. Gideon? They come to Joash's house. To the front door, rather. They just walk around to the front. They say, Bring us your son that he may die. You know what? It's only here in the story that we learn how important the idols were to the people. Apparently, they felt they couldn't do without them if it meant we want this man to die. I don't know what we would do if we woke up one morning and suddenly that thing that we like so much or do so much, if, if it was gone, what would we do? What would we do? They didn't know what to do. Death! Somebody has to die. A, a price has to be paid. Now here's where the man Gideon feared the most. Became his greatest defender. Joash. His father. I, I don't know what Gideon thought his father was going to say. Maybe he was going to go, well, he's just right here. Well, just come and take him. And he didn't. He stood up. Verse 31. Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? If he's a god, let him plead for himself, because he has cast down his, someone cast down his altar. I hear about all of the things going on in the world today. I hear about the Middle East is on fire, and Northern Africa is on fire, and insult has been done to a particular figure. And we're all, and people are all enraged about a video. You know what I want to say? If he's God, let him save himself. That's what Joash says. If he's God, let him save himself. And suddenly, Gideon has come to, to experience a great blessing. His courage and his faithfulness and his obedience rubbed off on his father. In 1548, John Knox was a prisoner on a French slave ship. He was chained to a rowing bench and last constantly by the guards, and he was there because he was preaching God's word, and he refused to submit to the practices of Catholicism. One day, the lieutenant brought aboard a wooden image of the virgin and demanded that the slaves kiss it, and they went one at a time and pressed it into Knox's face, and he refused, and they shoved it right up again, and he said, I'm not going to do it. And he took the image, and he threw it overboard, and he shouted out, let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. <gasps> and everybody waited. Knox is going to die. Divine fire is going to fall. Nothing happened. And when nothing happened, two very interesting things did happen. No longer, never again, were believers required to engage in Catholic exercises against their wishes. And men began, the other thing was, is that men began to look to Knox as their leader. We can follow this man. A man with such courage as this, if he can do this, then we can do it too. We're with him. That's how the Scottish Reformation began. I'm glad for it. My mother came over here from Scotland on a ship not too many years be, years ago. And I think about that story very often. Listen, our courage to commit ourselves to Christ and his demands can be used by God and the lives of other people. Gideon's courage obviously impacted and motivated his father to join the ranks on Gideon's side. And there would be many more to come. Yes, thankfully, godly choices by children at times can impact parents. 
It's usually the other way around. But if you're discouraged about mom and dad today, know that your behavior can make a difference in their lives too. There was likely a moment of eerie silence then, right after this. Joash has said what he said. Let Baal answer. Nothing happened. And when enough time passed to convince the people that Baal would do nothing and that Baal could do nothing, he gave his son another name, Zerubbabel. What does that mean? My margin has let Baal contend or let Baal answer. Eventually, the, the word came to mean the one who has beaten Baal. Or how do you like this? I came up with it. Baal beater. Baal beater. There's Baal beater. What do you think of him? Listen, do you want to be remembered like, do you want to be remembered as beaten by blank? There was a time she was doing so well. She's not around anymore. He was doing so well. He's gone. Beaten by. Or do you want to be bail beater? Lastly, Gideon built more than just an altar. He built an army. And it was because he built an army that he was enabled, because he built an altar, that he was enabled to build an army. He gained the trust of his people. If you were to go back to verses 33 and 34, you'll notice the first to join him. Well, even before that, the first to join him was his father, Joash. The second to join him was Abiezer. Say, who were the Abiezerites? That's his family. He was an Abiezerite. The next to join him was Manasseh. That's his tribe. And the next to join him after that were the tribes nearest Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun. The sphere was what? This is the way, typically, this is typically the way the Lord uses us. Right where you are, to the people closest, and then your sphere of service will widen from there. It's what he did with Gideon. This is Gideon's lesser known victory. I hope it won't be so unknown anymore. And it is the key to understanding the life of a man who was used in many ways because he first got things right at home.